Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast that campaigns as a moderate but governs as a radical. Just over one year ago, Keir Starmer was elected as leader of the Labour Party, beating out Lisa Nandy and Rebecca Long-Bailey in what should have been a hard-fought and nail-biting campaign. Instead, it was kind of a blowout. Sir Keir won in the first round of voting with a whopping 56% of the vote, compared to 26% for Rebecca Long-Bailey and a mere 16% for Lisa Nandy. Starmer's leadership was always going to be a difficult one, navigating a fractured party rife with internal divisions, dealing with the thorny issue of anti-Semitism, and rebuilding Labour's brand amongst the red wall that was once Labour's heartland that has since been lost to the Tories are all things he needed to contend with. This was, of course, made even more difficult by the fact that even before he was elected leader, Britain found itself in the midst of a coronavirus pandemic. The question everybody is begging us to answer, though, is just exactly how well has Keir done over this past year? We'll answer that question after this jaunty theme song. observant of our listeners may have noticed that I, Steve, I'm not the one that normally does the intros for the episodes. Uh, this is because uh, Corey normally does them, uh, but sadly he is in what I'm referring to as short campaign hell for the local elections that are coming up in May. Uh, and as such, he's not re- able to record with us at the moment. So this week, I'm joined by a friend of the podcast, chair of the Birmingham West Midlands Fabian Society and newly graduated PhD holder, Dr. Luke John Dazus. H- how are you doing, Dr. LJ? I'm I'm not bad actually. I, te- I graduate in two days' time actually, technically. But um, I've got the title already. They've they've separated out the the giving you the certificate from the graduationy bit. So if I'm if I'm replacing Corey, I assume I just have to talk about PR all the time. Is that right? Uh, that, that that's a big part of it. Uh, make me talk about Brexit is the is, is the other thing. No matter how much I don't want to, uh, and get very annoyed about Phil Woolless uh, every time his name is brought up, which you of course are aware of that having trolled him mercilessly for multiple years now uh, on the end of year quiz with uh, such uh, such antics. That's always my goal. <laughs> <laughs> um, just to kind of get things started, I thought I'd kind of do a bit of a uh, top level look at the public polling for for Labour. So. Like on the face of it, it does seem to be a bit of a mixed picture um, for Starmer. Um, so at the start, uh, when he was first elected, Labour was on about thirty percent. I think it was actually just just below that. But the Tories were above fifty percent. So you've got about twenty percent plus difference uh, according to Politico's average of the poll of polls. In November, this is where we kind of had like peak performance. Um, there'd been a steady kind of increase in Labour's vote share, um, and by November. I believe that Labour had like around about on average a a neck and neck kind of performance with the Tories on about 39% each, uh, with some polls putting uh, Labour ahead of the Tories overall. Since then, though, the Tories are currently, uh, as of the research I did the other day, at least on around about 43% and Labour are on 35%. So there's been a growth and then a, a, a kind of like a fallback. So my first thing in question for you, LJ, is what what does this actually show or mean about uh, Starmer's first year? Is it is, is is this a massive problem? Does it mean that Starmer's not done well or, or what? I think what you've got to establish here is this very large volume of context, right? We are not in a normal political situation and we haven't been since Keir became leader. Um, you know, he has not 
actually met a single voter in person. Um, you know, we've had a year of Keir and he's still not been able to meet anyone. He's not been able to go and, you know, speak to a packed hall or anything like that. So I think you need to, to, to put that into context. I think the second thing you need to put into context is uh, where we were starting from, frankly. Um, you know, the, the famously the worst results since 1935, which is actually a bit of an understatement in a sense, because we actually gained seats in 1935 from our even worse performance in 31. So, um, you know, we, we had the most unpopular leader since polling began and the inevitable result happened. Um, so Keir has had to essentially scrub that from scrub that stain from the party. I think in terms of the opinion polls, what you've got here is not necessarily an analysis of Starmer, right? You've, what you've got is a people treating the opinion polls as they will treat the local elections as an opinion a referendum on the performance of the government. Um, and, you know, when the government was doing horrifically badly with the pandemic, when you had the utter fiasco that is track and trace, um, you know, which has caused tens of thousands of deaths, the government was understandably um, tanking in the polls and Labour was the recipient of that because the two half parties that, you know, up until recently, the Lib Dems and the and UKIP um, have collapsed, you know, they, they collapsed in 2015 and UKIP in 2017. Um, you know, and even the, the Reform Party, the success of the Brexit Party is, is trolling down in the low single digits. So, you know, you've, you've got no, you've essentially gone back to a two-party system. And when the Conservatives are bad, if you're, a, you know, treating it as a referendum on that, you put your box, you tick your box in the Labour side. Um, now you've got the uh, the vaccine rollout is going very well, mostly because the Conservatives have had nothing to do with it. You know, it's been the, the brainchild of Patrick Balance and the NHS. And, you know, that is the only game in town. It's the only issue that people are thinking about or caring about. And it has an 86% support level. Um, so in that sense, I think, you know, increasing Labour's vote share on, uh, on, on the 2019 election is about where we'd expect it to be. Um, I think I think what we've got is a situation where, you know, they are reaping the benefit of the polling bounce from the vaccine rollout. Um, you know, that's probably going to skew quite a few results in terms of what you're looking at um, when you do the, the kind of scores on the doors in the local elections, because you've got two, you know, two previous sets of local elections, 2016 and 17, um, have been rolled into one in this case, because the obviously the 2020 elections have been rolled over to this year. And I think there's a, uh, yeah, it's, it's very, very favourable territory for the government at the moment. Yeah, I think you're, you're pretty uh, right with, with, with that analysis there. I mean, I think the, the key thing, though, is, as you say, it's the fact that we're in this pandemic. It's created a very unique set of circumstances where I think any opposition leader, it doesn't matter who it was, you could probably have put Tony Blair in, in, in the middle of this or, or any kind of really successful uh, Labour leader, or if it were the other way around, any really successful, you know, conservative leader, um, and they would have probably struggled quite mightily to actually uh, make the the sorts of gains and, and attacks and, and criticisms that, to be honest, are rightly justified against the government, as, as you say, based on that their handling that they've had of a number of different issues, you know, test uh, track and trace being the being the main one, and obviously the the, the utter failure on that and the impacts that it's it's had. 
but let's not just forget the slow rollout of kind of like bringing in um, quarantine for foreign travellers as well as a, a number of other issues as well. Yeah, delay, um, delaying the lockdown in September particularly. Exactly. Yeah. Literally, in effect, this government had to cancel Christmas because they had screwed up a lot of the uh, a lot of the handling earlier on in the year. Now, that despite all of the screw ups, it's still a very difficult situation for any uh, political leader or any opposition party really to to kind of operate in because the minute you start criticizing the government too strongly it looks like you're playing politics with something which people do not want you to play politics with at all and i i do feel that you're, you're, you're kind of spot on with that's just kind of it, it, it's a, it's just like a lead weight around the party at the moment where we can't even get out of the uh, out of the you know the the, the starters blocks despite it's a, despite it being a year into uh Keir's leadership because this global event has just kind of prevented any kind of form of moving forward yeah and i think the other thing you've got to remember and and it sounds a little bit crass to to say it really given the situation but you know politics is a crass business um boris johnson and the conservatives have been on the television every channel every night more or less for a year Keir gets maybe 20 to 30 seconds rebuttal on you know, on the new, on the Channel Four News, um, just after it. So, you know, I, I think people have sort of said, "Oh, you know, the constructive opposition is the wrong way to go." I think the constructive opposition was the only way he could go. Um, people didn't want part, people to play party politics with the pandemic. Um, I think largely, you know, Labour has been constructive in its opposition. When when we've raised issues, it's been raising them because we want the government to do better. Um, you know, and, and to deal with the pandemic. Um, better and to, to offer support and constructive criticism on that and that was the only option that Labour had you know people don't want you to be um, you know opposing everything left right and centre for the sake of it when the country is going through a situation like this um, and rightly so I mean you know it's it's that's not doing anybody any good the, you know the, the party or the country so there is that I think you, the other thing you've got to to keep in mind is you know, this first stage, we are a long way out from a general election. I personally, I think the general election is going to be 2023, not 2024. Um, I think the, you know, the 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 way that uh, the 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 nice things and then the pain from the budget was announced tells you that it's going to be 2023 when we have the general election. Um, but this first year was all about getting the Labour Party in order, and you know. <laughs> regardless of the pandemic that was going to be the situation and i think you you have to kind of uh grade starmer on on how he's doing within the party as much as how he's doing within the country because i think uh, you know for all the circumstances we've just discussed um how he's doing within the party is not uh, within the country sorry is not hugely within his control he's been second fiddle in terms of the pandemic response because he's the opposition and that's just the nature of being the leader of the opposition the government does and the opposition talks um but the situation within the labor party i think is much more promising in terms of his uh his response or his uh scorecard for the year if you want to put it that way 
Yeah, I, I, I'm interested in, in in that you've said like you know the, this first year was all about kind of like laying the groundwork within uh, internally within Labour itself, which which I do uh, agree with. But like you, you, how do you rate that? Do you think that that he's done well on on, on that front? I think broadly, yes. I think um, the situation with the uh, the the end of of the 2019 election was that we'd been absolutely hammered. We were a hugely divided party. We had a huge issue with anti-Jewish racism, um, which is still working its way through the party. We've, we've not come out of that yet. Um, and we had a situation where the party, bluntly, a lot of the party machine had been destroyed. Um, you know, a lot of the experience campaign people in the regions in particular had been shown the door um, and people who were chosen to replace them were chosen based on loyalty to one individual rather than on necessarily their competence to do the job um, and that had a direct impact on the campaigning that we did I remember being uh, I was campaigning in Stoke in the election and on a whatsapp group for Birmingham Northfield CLP and a call went out about lunchtime saying we need more volunteers please can people come down we're worried and uh, the reply came back from the local momentum chapter oh we've bust everyone to the need it's going really well here we think we're going to win it and of course when the schools and the doors came we did lose Northfield um, and we lost the Eaton by I think 14,000 votes so you know <laughs> anyone who's sending a busload of activists to Nuneaton when, you know, in that situation, when you know what the situation is, you know, the polls were telling us where we were going to struggle. Um, it wasn't a surprise to anyone. Then, then frankly, that's someone who should not be running the campaign or, you know, a, a campaign in a general election for the Labour Party. So I think that was a huge issue and that is still being worked out. Um, you know, there, there are, we're trying to bring people back in and, and get, rebuild those, those election winning machines. I think in terms of leadership within the party, there are three kind of focuses of the leadership um, when conference isn't sitting. Uh, one is the obviously the leader's office itself. Obviously, when, when Keir won that election, he took control of that. Uh, one is the general secretary and one is the NEC. Uh, and obviously, it was only a couple of hours after uh, Keir was announced as leader that we got the NEC results. We got Joanna Baxter and uh, Gurinder Singh Josan elected to the NEC which gave Starmer a majority on the NEC, um, something that uh, was absolutely necessary, bluntly, um, for the party. And then obviously not long after that, Jenny Formby resigned and uh, we, he managed to secure David Evans, a supportive uh, um, candidate uh, to, to replace her. So, you know, very quickly, actually, um, he, he managed to get his hands on the levers of power within the party. And that's allowed for um, a lot of um, a lot of the infighting or the poison of some of the infighting to be drawn, because there isn't a centre of power that's fighting against the leadership, with the kind of political clout within the party that um, that could cause him real damage. Now, within the party, we are still undergoing a process of change. I think. Um, I think the headline figures in terms of the number of members is actually fairly stable, but I think there's a lot of churn underneath that. Um, I think we probably lost somewhere, um, and these are 
you know, very rough estimates, but I think we probably lost somewhere in the region of 100,000 pro-Corbyn members. And we've been replaced them with roughly 100,000 of the more centre-left uh, individuals. I think Jess Phillips' leadership campaign, for all it fizzled out, actually did recruit quite a lot of people into the party. Um, you know, I've, I've, I know quite a few who, who uh, personally who, who came back to for Jess and some of those then went to Keir and some of those went like myself to, to Lisa and Andy. Um, but I think that churn has produced a more supportive uh, activist base together with, you know, quite a lot of what's generally referred to as the soft left, um, who is just supportive of the leader, whoever the leader happens to be, um, and who I think genuinely um, see Keir as their man. Um, I think, you know, Keir, Keir is from that tradition within the party, um, who were supportive of Corbyn, who are now supportive of Keir. Um, so I think that's there. But I also think we still have a large rump within the party of um, uh, people who are not 100% on board with Keir's leadership. Um, I would say you've got a situation where the absolutely hardcore, and this is where a lot of the anti-Semitism stuff is still still lurking, frankly. Um, you, the absolute hardcore anti-Semites, the your, your Chris Williamson MP, 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 um, have been have been dealt with and expelled to a large extent. I don't think all of them have been, um, but quite a lot of them have, or have frankly jumped before they're pushed. Um, but a lot are, you know, but that that's uh, there's a sliding scale, if you like, you know the those hardcore uh, racists, bluntly, uh, are then surrounded by a, a group of enablers, if you like, who uh, might not necessarily uh, espouse those same things and, and say, you know, share, frankly, Nazi-era cartoons on, on social media, um, but who will go, sit there and go, oh, well, they have a point, or, oh, well, you know, you can't, that's just them, and you can't, you know, uh, make waves or what have you. Um, and that crowd is still in the party predominantly um there was some figures not that long ago which still showed and i forget the exact number but still showed a really high level within the party saying that the anti-semitism crisis was exaggerated um and i think that is for me one of the big tests for kia um i think he really does need to um keep keep his eye on that one uh, you know we we need to scrub that out of the party um and fast um i think the suspension of jeremy corbyn until he apologizes is exactly the right thing to do and um i was horrified when the old nec um let him back in pulled a fast one to let him back in and i think not restoring the whip is the right call um just morally i mean forgetting the politics of it just just morally and um, I think that's that's a bit of a delayed time bomb in a sense that confrontation is going to come. Uh, you know, I said when Keir won that sooner or later he was going to be faced with the choice between dealing with the anti-Semitism crisis and maintaining the party unity that he talked about in his leadership campaign. Um, Corbyn forced him into that choice straight after the EHRC report. Um, but the fact that he's suspended but still a member, the whip suspended but he's still a member, means that that has not really come to a head yet. Um, and I think when it does, that's going to be a very 
interesting day. Um, and it's also telling that the Corbynites have chosen to fight him on the one ground he will not and cannot give way on. Well, I, I think what you kind of like touched on there, that 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 whole kind of like unity um, thing, which was a major kind of like message um, that, that Keir put forward as part of his leadership campaign. Um, I think that's kind of like one of the interesting things, because I feel like, like, whilst I, I agree, I think broadly speaking, especially in dealing with a lot of the anti-Semitism stuff, like Starmer's done the correct thing. Um, but the, the, but he, there's been this kind of like, to me, like an interesting little undercurrent of uh, some of the decisions that have that, that have kind of been made, which are have been a bit, for lack of a better term, cack-handed um, yeah. in, in terms of how they they've been handled. Like the, the the two that spring spring to mind is the situation in Liverpool, where you know we, the the uh, Labour mayor and, and candidate got arrested, and obviously wasn't going to couldn't run couldn't run again. So we then have a shortlist, which then three, the pe- people who are on the shortlist get pulled from the shortlist and with no explanation as to why. Um, and I think it's ended up back on the shortlist as well, or at least some of them did. And it, 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 again, with no kind of real explanation as to what was going on or, or, or what was happening. You've got the, quite frankly, the absolute farcical sight of a one-man um, you know, shortlist for the Hartlepool by-election with a load of um, emails actively getting leaked, um, where they're basically where it's evidence that the, the the Starmer's leadership have gone. No, we really want this guy back in. Can you can you request to have him on our, uh, so that we've got a reason to just kind of like put put him in? And obviously, there's people up there who are who are fine with that and and, and doing that and for for whatever reason. But like, there's just been this. A number of these, these these quite minor in in the grand scheme of things, like mistakes, I would say, in terms of uh, how these sorts of things have been handled, um, a lack of clear communication, failed kind of like almost amateurish political maneuverings, um, which have happened, which in a lot of ways massively do undermine that that unity message that he was putting out, and like. It's one thing to to not, um, you, you know, to, to to say I am prepared to, you know, stand up against racism and and, and anti-Semitism and and the people. I don't want to be unified with people who, who support that. That it's one thing to say that. It's another thing to, you know, try and rig a, a by-election selection in your favour with uh, with one person when especially when we know that there are lots of ways you can effectively achieve the same the same outcome um, without making it so bloody obvious. And so you have this, this uh, as I say, political, almost like am- am- amateurness, which seems to have come about in Starmer's leadership when it comes to some of this internal stuff, which I do feel like is going to, has the potential to damage the meaningful unity. At the moment, I believe, like based on the polling, the party is still behind Starmer. But if we get more and more of these little things happening, I can start to see that edging and edging away and just dropping over time. And, and that's where look where I feel like his biggest weakness has been really over the past year or so. Mm. I think I would I would sort of um, on the by-election point, I would say, you know, every leader does its best to impose its candidates on places, not necessarily Play, um, the ones that the local activists would have chosen. I mean, just ask the people of Leicester East, right? Um, but what Paul Williams was the right candidate for Hartlepool, right? He's 
he's been an MP before. He's got that experience. He's a local GP. He's been working in Hartlepool during the pandemic uh, in the vaccine centres and everything else. Um, he was the right candidate. What, and, and in a by-election, the NEC controls the candidate selection process predominantly anyway. Um, the, I think that is one that illustrates my point about the party in the regions and, and how that machine has broken down in that the NEC controls those selections anyway. Paul Williams was by quite a long shot from everything we've heard, the best candidate. They moved quickly. They got him in place to campaign um, in a you know a situation where a by-election's called at relatively short notice and in a situation that's very favourable to the government in a seat that uh, had the Brexit party not stood. May well we, we may well have lost in 2019. Um, and you know, they moved quickly to get their candidate in place so that they could start raising their profile bluntly try and hold the seat um, and I think all of that was the right thing to do what the where that can, becomes problematic is when all of those emails and communications get leaked and you know that speaks of the the people within the party machine that would rather the Labour Party loses an election um, in order to show you know to, to tr show up Keir um, rather than trying to um to beat the Tories, frankly. And that's that's not a quick process. Changing all of you know, staff very rightly obviously have uh, rights and their contracts and everything else. Um if there are staff that are leaking emails like that, then you know the, the party has to um has to take its time to to deal with those and, and recover. But I mean this is saying, you know, the, not necessarily staff. I shouldn't say staff necessarily. Um, the uh, you know it could well be local activists or, or, or local volunteers or somebody who's got hold of that and leaked it. Um, but this is what I mean when I say you know he's he's going to have to choose between between sticking to his party unity approach and actually being able to to impose his his will on things. So yeah, so I kind of want to take a almost like a step forward uh, in, in in a way because obviously we spent a lot of time talking about the internal stuff there. Um, I want to kind of look at like the the external picture. Uh, I suppose is the best way to put it because obviously the purpose of the Labour Party is to get itself elected, to get into government, so it can you know bring about uh, change uh, in in Britain. Now, in order to do that, we need to be ahead. Uh, uh, versus the Tories in an opinion poll so that when it comes time for an actual national election, we can win enough seats to be able to form that government. Now, as we've said, we're behind at the moment. Whatever the rights or wrongs or, or the reasons for it, we are behind, despite the huge screw-ups that the government has had. So my first question is, in, in terms of moving forward, what, what does Starmer actually need to do to kind of regain that, that that little bit of ground that has been lost since November, but also kind of go further. Because being four, five percent ahead, like a little bit uh, ahead uh, versus, you know, this 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 government feels like almost a loss in and of its own way because of like, but there's there's a thing on the left of the no, uh, uh, of the left, and I mean that broadly, including like us in, in, in the moderate self left and hard left or whatever of this kind of like meme of well why aren't we 20% ahead 20% ahead where you know which obviously came about initially because of some criticisms 
some fair, some not um, of, <laughs> of, 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 of Corbyn and, uh, you know, versus May and, and, and all of that sort of stuff where there was a thing of, well, what any other leader would be 20% ahead and therefore like the, the, the Corbyn-centric uh, parts of social media have kind of gone, well, why isn't Starmer 20% ahead? You all said that, that with any other leader would be 20% ahead. Now, obviously, like that's a ridiculous figure um, and it's, it's, all, it's more rhetoric um, and what passes for discourse online than anything else. But there is a definite thing of, you know, four or 5%, it's not a lot and it's well within margin of error territory. So mm. what, what do we need, what do you reckon needs to actually happen to kind of move things forward um, to a point where, you know, Labour actually is solidly, you know, in the lead and you can mm. basically, you know, say with a bit of, you know, fingers crossed at least come the next election. Keir Starmer becomes Prime Minister. Yeah, I think we again have to contextualise a lot of this and the appalling result in 2019 um, gives you, you know, there's a lot of ground to make up and it's doable. Um, we have, you know, we're not as far behind as David Cameron was after 2005. So it is, you know, and he ended up in number 10 after 2010. So it is possible but it's a very big mountain to climb. There is a number of things here that are in play. The first is a lot of people who'd never heard the Tory before have done it for the first time and discovered the sky didn't fall in. Um, you know, we, we spent a lot of time telling uh, people that if they voted Tory, then everything would, you know, be the most calamity. And for a lot of them, um, that hasn't happened. So, you know, um, if, your, if Brexit was your big issue and Brexit's now being resolved, um, Bluntly, with, with the pandemic being the only other game in town and the vaccine rollout going well, what, what cause do you have at the moment to regret that vote? Um, so that will come. Um, Boris Johnson and his cabinet are some of the most incompetent politicians you can ever, you know, I was going to say hope to meet, but um, hope not to. Um, you know, there, there will be a lot of mistakes. I think hammering the competency issue is one good uh, line of attack and it has to be maintained um, and you know Boris Johnson does not come across as a competent individual Keir Starmer does he cl he passes that you know close your eyes can you imagine him on number 10 test uh, people can but I think the the competence uh, attack line needs to be maintained and I think Labour has not yet passed a lot of what I would refer to as threshold tests, right? So um, these, these are things that make people think the party is on their side. And if you, I'll, I'll give you an example from American politics to, to sort of context, take, take that thing. Um, Latino voters in the United States do not have a single laser-like focus on the issue of immigration as the only thing they care about. Um, it's not the case, but immigration and the rhetoric around immigration is a good litmus test for Latino voters to say, is this person, broadly speaking, on my side or not? Are they, you know, someone who thinks that this country is better off for having Latino people in it? Or are they someone who wishes that I wasn't here? Um, so even when immigration is not their number one issue, whether, it, you know, that would be the pandemic or the economy or education or whatever it is, 
that is a threshold test. If someone is doing a Donald Trump on immigration, and I think you know it's noticeable that when immigration was high on the on his agenda in 2016 and in the 2018 midterms, he did very badly amongst uh, even conservative leaning Latino voters. And when that wasn't the salient issue in uh, in the 2020 election, he did very he, he did comparatively better. But you know that is a, a threshold test um, to see whether or not you're on their side now. If you bring that back to to the UK context, patriotism, for example, you know, do you broadly think that this is a country that is more for uh, produces more good in the world than it does ill? It's as simple as that, you know. And and Labour failed that threshold test, frankly, in in 2019. And it didn't matter whether the individual policies that we then talked about afterwards were popular or not. People felt we weren't on their side, so they wouldn't give us a hearing. So the first thing he needs to do is to pass those threshold tests and he's he is doing he's aware of that you know claire ainsley who, who wrote the new working class is one of his advisors uh, her book is very very good i strongly recommend people read it um but you know he knows so you know she'll be telling him he knows this stuff we have noticeably become more patriotic we are not hammering on about uh, republicanism in the wake of the death of the duke of edinburgh um which we would have been Frankly, if if I can't see Jeremy Corbyn delivering the, the the statement that Keir Starmer did on Prince Philip's death, and and those threshold tests, are the first thing we need to do, because until we've done that, it doesn't actually matter what our policies are, because people aren't going to give us the hearing. Um, so I think you know we, he needs to keep working on those, um, and again, we're waiting for for a time when when hopefully, dear God, please, the pandemic is behind us and normal politics resumes. Um, but yeah, those those I think are the, are the prerequisites before he can before he can make those steps forward. Yeah, so I think on the the, the patriotism thing as a, as a threshold test, I think that is quite an interesting one. Um, and I'm, I'm part way through reading uh, Claire Ainsley's um, book uh, book myself, but uh, it was quite notable that even during the pandemic, there have been like kind of like soft launches, I suppose, is the best way to describe it of this kind of patriotism forward mm. labor party well I, I, can't, I can't i think it was i can't even remember when it was because the pandemic everything has just kind of merged into <laughs> one time i don't even know whether it could have been last week it could have been six months ago who knows at this point but i do distinctly remember starmer stood in front of a background which was at least vaguely like union jack themed and talking about how we can invest in britain in britain's future after the pandemic and saying if i was prime minister we'd be bringing in in, in effect um patriotism bonds where people can like invest in in britain directly um as a as a means to kind of like put forward that message um so yeah th- there is definitely work happening in that kind of area and you are starting to see bits and pieces of that come to the forefront when an opportunity is presenting itself but again as you say no one's listening at the moment so why waste your why waste your big moments um, and I think that's the main thing that the Labour leadership needs to do is just kind of wait for the right opportunity and fingers crossed <laughs> for not just for the political elements, but the fact that it will mean we're back to relative normal that that should be coming this summer, mm. um, at which point, you know, we now return to our regularly scheduled programming of, you know, tearing each other to, to, to bits at um, PMQs. Uh, in a way that's actually, you know, means we can actually hold the government to account for its screw ups. But that is obviously a medium term thing. Mm-hmm. In the short term, there's been a lot of, I'd say, discussion online at the very least. And certainly, I think within 
like media column inches as well uh surrounding you know the uh the front bench that uh starmer has and i think the last thing really for us to kind of delve into uh on, on this episode is is the the question of people like Annalise Dodds, who was brought in as the shadow chancellor um, for for Labour um, by Starmer right at the beginning, um, and there's been lots of discussion as to whether or not she's doing a good job, mm-hmm. whether she should be replaced. Names that have been kind of thrown around for that replacement are people like Rachel Reeves, Yvette Cooper. I think Hillary Benn, in, in, to, to some extent, has been brought up in that as well. But with Ben, it's been more... He just needs to be back in the front bench in some form. Um, it, it, it seems to be a, a lot of the, the, the discourse around him. Um, what's your opinion on that? Do you do you think that a bit of a, fa- a, a kind of like a, a fresh lick of paint is needed on the on the shadow cabinet, or do you do, or do you think that's just rearranging deck chairs for the sake of it? I think that is. I I personally think that's that's a mistake to to talk about reshuffles i think that is um people getting frit to to coin the thatcher phrase let's take annalise as, as a as a perfect example right annalise is an economist she is in the perfect brief for her because it's the brief that she's been preparing for her whole life listen to her may's lecture it's extremely good i think a lot of people have a emotional investment in kia and don't want to be too critical of him, but are spooked by the fact we are not ahead in the polls at the moment. And there's an awful lot of people who still still have this attitude of how could anybody possibly vote Conservative? Um, and therefore, if there's still you know the opinion polls are still showing support for the conservatives well it can't just be we can't be that we haven't persuaded enough people because look we've pointed out that the Tories are bad many many times um you know it must be that there is a problem with us and we and we can't say it's a problem with Kia because we're still emotionally invested in him having not that long ago voted for him and therefore it must be the shadow cabinet and people he has around him now the party has not necessarily given them the chance to shine particularly well not necessarily the party's fault i think that's mainly due to the pandemic i think some of them are not the most natural communicators but equally you know it took gordon brown quite a long time to become gordon brown um and you know i don't think that you know snapping and suddenly replacing them less than a year into the job is is the way to go about that. Um, specifically of some of the other figures that people talked about, I think Rachel Reeves is doing an absolutely fantastic job where she is. Michael Gove is, as much as you dislike Michael Gove, he is by a long shot the most competent of the uh, ministers in the cabinet that we're up against. And I think having Rachel Reeves opposite him um, is actually a, a good thing um, and, uh, and an important thing. Yvette Cooper and Hilary Benn, both excellent. Yvette Cooper is eviscerating Pretty Patel as chair of the Home Affairs Select Committee, um, which I think is is a very good thing. Those figures are, well, those two really, and possibly Emily Thornbury, are the last survivors of a generation of Labour people who are now missing, um, many of whom fell victim to the TBGBs. Um, but there is, you know, a swathe of them uh, you know, both Millibands, Ed Balls, Mary Cray, these sort of senior figures who would ordinarily be populating 
um, those ranks, James Pennell, another one, who for one reason or another are either not in Parliament, you know, Ed Balls lost his seat, David Miliband stepped down, uh, James Pennell stepped down to go, I believe he became uh, Secretary of the BBC, Mary Cray lost her seat, uh, Ed Miliband nearly lost his seat, um, he was another one who, if the Brexit party hadn't stood, might well have lost his seat, but uh, you know, he's now reinventing himself at, at uh, business department. Um, so, you know, it took Ian Duncan Smith 15 years to reinvent himself and it's going to take the same for Ed. Um, so, you know, Yvette Cooper and, and Hilary Benn are the last ones of those left. If you bring them in now, it's reminding people of a version of the Labour Party they already rejected, right? Getting back to 2015 and only losing by 2015 levels is not the target. Bluntly, if one in eight, one in 10 of the general public could name shadow ministers, I'd be shocked. Uh, and I'd be shocked about that if you're talking about 1995 or 96, if 10% of the general public could have named the shadow cabinet, I'd have been shocked. Um, so, you know, I think in a large extent, they've not actually really had a chance to introduce themselves to the general public yet. You know, we're, we're, we're political obsessives. We watch BBC Parliament. We, you know, read the New Statesman and The Economist and um, and follow PMQs every week. The vast majority of the public don't care, particularly at the moment, you know, particularly right now. They, they've got a lot of other things on their plate. Um, and, you know, saying, oh, Annalise Dodds isn't recognised by enough people. Well, yeah. You know, how many of the general public could name Alok Sharma? Or Kwasi Kwarteng, probably name, they'll, they'll name Boris, they could probably name Rishi Sunak, they might be able to name Priti Patel. How many could name Dominic Raab? You know, um, even with all of the horror show that has been in the education department in the last year, there's actually not very many who could name Gavin Williamson. You know, if I, if I took a straw poll, if I take my stepdaughter to school and I ask the people outside, who's Gavin Williamson? They wouldn't have a clue. They'd probably say, place for Leicester. You know, make a stab at it. The rumblings are an expression of bit of panic i think amongst parts of the labor party rather than this assumption that all you've got to do is say look tories are bad um and that people will go oh well in that case i'll vote like um, it, it's more than that we we've got a it's hard grinding slog we've got to persuade people to switch their votes and that's that's what we're up against yeah I, I i'm inclined to agree with you i think an awful lot of this is we need to do something this is something therefore we must do it as a yeah. kind of like an attitude um when it comes to this sort of stuff at the moment um and, and again a, a big part of it is i think is just like it, i don't think it's it's surprising really that the amount of discourse around or oh, maybe we need to reshuffle maybe we need to swap this person out or or whatever kind of like rises and falls exactly in line with the voter intention for labor like we're currently down as a result of the vaccine rollout uh, doing well. And suddenly, oh, we, we need to talk about how we can get back. And this is something. And uh, therefore, we must do it. Uh, yeah, it's Harold Wilson's point, isn't it? You know, the Labour Party, you have to keep the Labour Party rattling along at speed. If you slow down enough, the people can get off. They'll start arguing. Yeah, 100%. With that, I think that's probably where we're going to leave this episode then. Now I need to remember all of the random little bits that Corey does at the end of the episode as well. I'll probably oh. forget something. And I need, I need to mention just very quickly uh, both the uh, proportional, vote, proportional representation and uh, also Phil Willis. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so just to, just to let you know that LJ is thinking about you, Corey. If you want to find us online, you can head over to notenoughchampagne.com. You can find us on Facebook on facebook.com slash notenoughchampagne, Twitter at nochampagnepod. 
Um, you can also head over to patreon.com uh, slash not enough champagne where you can throw us a few quid every uh, every month to gain access to unique episodes uh, as well as unique blogs, early access to things, all kinds of fun and games. Uh, everything that uh, we get, go, get from that goes towards uh, kind of like keeping the podcast running. Um, and we are very grateful for all of our backers over there already. Uh, my name is Steve Haynes. Not t-shirts yet. Uh, we do not have t-shirts yet, no. Oh, that's, come on, Corey, get on it. Expansion. <laughs> uh, my name is Steve Haynes. You can follow me on Twitter at Acoustic Radical. And I'm uh, at LJD Labour. Happy plotting. <laughs>